welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. <laughs> Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. It's, um, it is one of my, it's always an anticipated day, you know, like how will this go with the kids? And um, evidently we got some palms that were a little, uh, they lacked a little backbone. I don't know. <laughs> They were, they were frozen, that was it. They were frozen. We got a refrigerator that's a little temperamental, so one little guy up here, with his was just demolished by the time he was done, so. Um, well, uh, welcome to you all. Again, my name is Micah. If we have not met, glad that you're with us. A couple things before we get started uh, in our series and passage in the book of Mark. First of which is, if you are new, we would love to know that you were here. Uh, somebody from our team would love to reach out to you. You can let us know that you are with us. Uh, there are cards in the seat pockets in front of you there or online. And we'll invite you to a beverage of your choice. We can get to know you a little. You can get to know us. There are uh, a number of ways you can give to Awaken. So if you have tithes or offerings, um, there are online options. Or they can go in the black boxes at each of the exits along with those cards. We're grateful for both of those gifts. Uh, a couple of announcements and things that are happening. Number one is our pancake breakfast that's coming on April the 22nd. We are now in April. Can you guys believe this? I mean, seriously. It was raining. What, what, what night was it? Friday night. It was like raining, and I was like, there's no way that it's going to turn into 10 inches of snow. I told my wife, I'm like, I'm not a meteorologist, honey, but I don't think this is happening. <laughs> she really let me have it the next day. Boy, oh boy. California girl, she's like, you're an idiot and we're moving. Um, and why do you think you know more than a meteorologist? You're a pastor for crying out loud. It's valid. All things valid there. Um, but it is April. And um, so uh, April 22nd, we're having a pancake breakfast. Earth Day is coming on April 22nd. So this is a, a gift that we want to give to the neighborhood. So we're hosting this pancake breakfast. So as a member of Awaken, as a partner, uh, participant in this church, there's two invitations. Number one, if you want to help us make this happen as a volunteer, we need a, a skeleton crew to do that, 10 to 15 folks, uh, a number of which we already have. Or if you'd like to attend, um, come and join. Uh, it's free, so you can, you can reserve a, a spot for that. At this point, we don't have a lot of people signing up for the pancake breakfast. I'm a little nervous about that, but, you know, people sign up late to things all the time around here. So we're hoping more folks show up. That's April 22nd. There's two seatings, eight, uh, I think it's, what, does it say what time that's at? It's all online. You can find the details there. Um, Discover Awaken is coming the, the following day, the 23rd. If you are new and you'd like to know more about Awaken, we host this class like once a quarter. Uh, and it's an opportunity for you to ask questions, to hear a little bit more about the story of Awaken and um, kind of a few of the, open up the hood a little bit and see what's underneath it. So uh, you can join us for lunch for that. And if you could sign up online, that's helpful so we can prepare lunch for you. There is a women's ecumenical luncheon that is happening. Um, can I get a round of applause for that? Jenna's very excited. That's the 29th of April. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, St. Peter's is a uh, church right here in the neighborhood. They're hosting. And it is what it sounds like. It is a lunch uh, that includes a number of different folks from churches in the neighborhood. So uh, it's been happening for decades now, and we are in charge of the dinner rolls this year. We've been upgraded. Started at Mints. The next year was Relish, which for you non-Minnesotans is pickles and olives. And now it's dinner rolls. So we, we did host it too, so that was a big year. 
That was a really big year in the life of the church. 11.30, April 29th. If you identify as a lady, you are invited to that. All right? And then last but not least, Easter. It's, this is Holy Week, um, so a couple things happening. Good Friday gathering is 6.30 on Friday night, and join us for that. And then Easter Sunday, next week, 9 and 10.30. To those who call awake and home, I would invite you to come early and get seats, and please come to the front, if you would. Take these seats right here, down in the front. Um, I have a feeling that it's, if the weather, if it's not snowing, I think it's going to be a full house around here. So um, please help us out in that way. That'd be great. Sound good? All right, if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 15. Uh, This is the final week of the Lenten season, uh, 40 days before Easter minus the six Sundays, this season of preparation and intentionality as we make our way towards this death and resurrection moment, the pinnacle, really, of the Christian story, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, It's also Palm Sunday, obviously, the day that we celebrate Jesus' entry into the city. So this is the beginning of his last week of life. Um, to a a crowd that is, you know, it's March Madness for crying out loud. People are cheering. They're excited about the Zags. Uh, Are they even in it this year, Gonzaga? Did they make it to the Final Four? No, okay, forget that. Uh, They're excited about whoever's playing, and um, Jesus is coming into the city, and these are the same people who at the end of this week will will ask for his death by by the cross. Uh, We have been traveling in Mark's Gospel since the beginning of Epiphany, right before Lent, and we've walked with, with Mark, really, from the baptism of Jesus all the way up to this point, where we see Jesus, who um, is being transformed before our very eyes in the Gospels, right? Um, I'm assuming that Jesus didn't come out of the womb ready to go to the cross, but rather he was human, and that process of him ultimately choosing death John reminds us, no greater love than this, than a man who gives up his life for his friends. Jesus makes the ultimate choice of love, but how did he get there? And so that's been this series that we've been in about the transformation of Jesus. Last week, we deviated a little. We looked at Peter uh, and this, this, this wonderful character in the Gospels. Um, and this week, we're coming back to Jesus. Uh, so if you remember, he was before the Sanhedrin a couple of weeks ago. These are the religious leaders of Israel. And now we find him, he's been charged by the religious leaders with blasphemy. That he's equating himself with the Son of God, the Messiah. He's saying that he shares in the authority of the throne of God itself. And so the religious leaders are upset about that. And they bring him before this famous person whose name is Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the Roman prefect. He was the governor of this area we know as uh, as Israel. And... uh, His sort of home court was in Caesarea, which was north of Jerusalem. But, of course, during the festival of Passover, of which we are in, uh, he would have come down from Caesarea to make sure that there were no riots or revolts or any kind of ballyhoo or tomfoolery. So Pilate is in the city, and they bring Jesus before him. The the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, they charged him with a religious crime, equating himself with God. And that's not worthy of death, according to Roman law. So if you notice, the, the charges actually change when he gets before Herod uh, in ways that are convenient to the religious leaders. He's not just saying he's the son of God. Now he's saying he's the king of the Jews. And to claim to be the king would be an affront on Caesar. And so now we've got a capital crime worthy of death by the Roman law. So Mark chapter 15, I would invite you to rise in body or in spirit for the reading of the text. 
And we're getting to the end of Mark's gospel, only 16 chapters. So here we are in 15. He writes this. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The Greek there is literally, you say. So depending on what translation you read, you get a lot of versions of what does that mean. But you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things, and so again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And a man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate, do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He handed Jesus, he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pray with me. God, this morning... We're getting to the end of this story, and uh, I pray that as we turn our hearts and our attention, our minds to what Mark might be trying to tell us, that we would be open to, that our eyes would be open, our ears would be, our hearts would be soft, to hear the word of the Spirit for us today. That whatever this meant 2,000 years ago, I believe that it's still speaking today, that you are still picking up these words and choosing to reveal yourself to us through them. And so do it again, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And the church said together, Amen. You may be seated. So this morning, what I would like to do is uh, think of a bullseye, think concentric circles, and I want to start zoomed out. We're going to look at Pilate for a minute. Um, In this interaction, we see uh, an interesting character, somebody who's not, um, well, let's say he's nuanced. So we're going to look at Pilate, and then we're going to zoom in a little bit more and look at this thing, actually, that we know as the cross. And then finally, all the way in, uh, the the actions and attitudes of Jesus himself in this interaction. Um, Imagine, if you will, maybe you know somebody like this, a person for whom, in your circle, uh, Everybody kind of knows who they are. They have a reputation. They sort of are known for this one thing. And everybody sort of knows who that person is and what they're about, right? Do you have somebody in mind? And then you get the opportunity to meet this person or spend some time with this person. And as you do, you find that they're a little more, um, there's a little more depth. There's a little more to this person than meets the eye, right? Their reputation or what they've become to, uh, to be known as isn't, doesn't tell the whole story, uh, I think this happens often um, in our own lives, but it certainly happens with a guy named Pilate. I want to suggest that Pilate is not one-dimensional. He's not a monolith. He's not um, sort of monotone. He's actually a very nuanced person. The rabbis talk about light and dark and how the spiritual life is um, boiled down is often about interpreting or discerning what's light and dark, what's heavy 
or what's light in their terms. So the word uh, holy or is the word kavod. It means heavy or weighty. Like what's weighty and what, what can be sort of left? That's the work of the spiritual life. Um, and, and similar, within humans, there is this sense that there is both light and darkness in all of us. There's beauty and wonder and like awe and amazement in every human, in you, in me. And if I could have some volunteers to come on up and testify to the fact that there's also evil, darkness, selfishness, right? In each of us, both of these things exist. And so to paint any one person as all good or all light or all evil or all darkness is, um, it's not very mature. It's pretty reductionary, but we do it all the time. We participate in it. We like it, actually, sometimes. So take Pilate. Um, he's a polarizing figure. Throughout Christian history, this guy has sort of become the lightning rod or uh, a scapegoat for many of us as we read this story. Again, Pilate, uh, his kind of capital, his home was in Caesarea in the north. He would have come down to Jerusalem for this, uh, this festival. And um, many in the Christian tradition paint Pilate as a coward, this sort of scapegoat, this person who makes uh, decisions only that benefit himself. Uh, maybe selfish, if you will. Here are a few commentaries, just a couple of quotes about Pilate that I found this week to kind of let you in on this. Right? Here's one from the Africa Bible Commentary. It says, Pilate was a morally bankrupt character. He knew very well that Jesus was innocent and what the right action would be, but he failed to act because he wanted to please the crowd, even if it cost an innocent life. The weakness of his character is clearly demonstrated as he had Jesus flogged and handed over. Uh, another comment, commentator, a guy named Mark Garland, says, People with no moral compass or no moral backbone ask, What am I to do? This is Pilate's question. And the answer they usually get is to satisfy the crowd. And then in doing so, Pilate cedes his responsibility, acquiesces to injustice, and refuses to risk anything of another. He's the type of leader who forever has his finger up holding in the wind to see which way it's blowing, and does something for others as long as it costs him nothing. Any Game of Thrones fans out there? Right? This is Cersei Lannister, or really any Lannister. Yeah. Always looking out for themselves, whatever, whatever costs others for their gain. Pilate is this government official. He has power. He has influence. And yet he allows the crowds to sort of manipulate his response. And the crowds prove to be mercurial and fickle. Um, he... he, he allows Barabbas to walk the path of Jesus and Jesus to walk the path of Barabbas. He has the power to stand up and say stop to the crowds, but he doesn't. He washes his hands of it and, and then sits on his hands, right? Um, I, I, there's a friend of mine named Mike Carey, and Mike is a pastor out in the Bronx, uh, leader of color, and early on in my church planting, we were having a conversation, and I asked Mike, I said, like, as a white pastor, um, you know, any, if you could speak to us as white church planters in the covenant, like what would you say? Like, how, how would you encourage? And he said, Micah, use the power that you have to challenge the system and the status quo. Take whatever power you do have and use it to le leverage it for the benefit of others. Um, in some ways, you see Pilate here, he has power. He's got the ability to do something, to change the outcome, and yet he doesn't. In some ways, side note, uh, a lot of this tomfoolery uh, that's happening in the covenant right now that some of you are familiar with, um, in, for me personally, I'll just say, I've taken Mike's words to heart, and 
I personally, I have access to power. I, I have some power. And so I keep going to Chicago, and I keep standing up in the Court of Appeals, and I keep saying, on behalf of those who are being harmed, stop! Because I don't want to be the kind of person that doesn't use power that I do have. And I hope that I get the opportunity to go to California. And knowing our likely demise, like knowing the likely event of our going, that it will probably mean that we'll be asked to leave the covenant. That's probably what's going to happen. But I don't want to look back and feel like I had something that I could have leveraged. I had power and I could have used it for the benefit of those who don't. That's just my personal journey in some of this. So this is pilot for many people, right? Served his own interest, could have used power, didn't. Kind of scapegoated. But did you know that this is not what the entirety of the Christian church has thought about Pilate for the, all of history. In fact, a large portion, a significant portion of the Christian tradition has thought very differently about Pilate, which I didn't know until I started researching about Pilate, because all I was ever told were these quotes. This is a morally bankrupt character who only serves himself. In Luke's gospel, we get one, one um, account of this situation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have their accounts. And Luke's is actually quite big. It's broad, and it's more, uh, it gives more details. In it, we find that it's not only just Pilate, but Herod's there as well. And in the midst of this trial, Pilate multiple times attempts to, to, to get Jesus off the hook. He says, this guy, isn't, he's, not, he's not guilty of the crime that you say he's guilty of. Like, we've got to find a different way in Luke. Twice he does that. Uh, there are apocryphal books. So there is the Bible, 66 books that we call the canon of Scripture, and there was a process by which these books came to be called the Bible. Uh, it's very involved, and there's reasons why these books are in it and others, other books are not in it. But the other books that aren't in it are not relegated to useless because they're not in this book. So there's a whole book called the Apocrypha that is in many Bibles in Catholic churches. It's included in there. One of the books of the Apocrypha is called the Gospel of Peter. And in the Gospel of Peter, we find that it's actually Herod who pronounces Jesus' judgment, not Pilate. In uh, a, a, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, very early on, I think 3rd century, speaks about a full report that Pilate sent back to the emperor of Rome where he intimates or basically lets on that he's a follower of Jesus, that Pilate was a believer. In another apocryphal text called the Gospel According to Nicodemus, or the Acts of Pilate, Pilate puts up a fight to spare Jesus, to get somebody else out there as guilty. There's a letter from Pilate that claims that he sent troops to stop the crucifixion from happening. And all of this has, has led the Ethiopian church and the Coptic church to venerate and to... Um, to canonize Pilate. There's a day in the life of the church that celebrates the, that, this character Pilate in the Ethiopian and Coptic churches. Did you know this? Here's my point. Your view is only your view. Your perspective is only your perspective. My perspective is only my perspective. And it's a very dangerous game that we play when we pronounce judgment upon anyone else in finality where we assume to know the depth of one's character and can make a judgment about one person this way or that. That's a game that only God can play and only God intended to play prior to Adam and Eve eating from a tree to gain knowledge they didn't, that God did not intend them to have. 
Just a friendly reminder from your neighborhood pastor this morning. When we look at a guy like Pilate, it's really easy to sweep him off the table, to sort of put him in a category of, oh, yeah, scapegoat, he didn't do anything he could have, he didn't use the power, right? And, and we sort of make him into the bad guy, when in fact there's a whole section of our tradition, the Christian church, who sees Pilate very differently than we do. Which I think is just a good lesson to keep in mind. I'll say also, uh, no, that's enough I'll say about that. This isn't a sermon about the Apocrypha. Um, so let's keep zooming in, all right? So we find Pilate, this, this nuanced character who's not just monochromatic, right? He's, he's got some shades of gray to him, like all of us do. Um, let's zoom in on the cross itself. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible doesn't really mention the cross at all until the very end of the Gospels. Mark's this is the first mention of the cross, how Jesus will die, in Mark's gospel, the 15th chapter of 16. Nowhere else in the Bible prior to the gospels does it say how Jesus will die. So the symbol, the very center of the Christian story, the cross, it really isn't mentioned in the Bible. It says that Jesus will be, uh, you know, he'll, be, he'll give up his, his life as a ransom for many. The prophet Isaiah says he'll be despised and rejected, bruised for our iniquities, pierced for our transgression, but no mention of, like, he will hang on a cross, crucified. Nobody says that. So what was the cross? What was this thing that has become the center of our story? No, I will not go into the gory details of the crucifixion now. Very predictable. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to spend a little bit of time here. Historians remind us that the the cross was not used first by the Romans. It was used by other civilizations before them. But many would argue that the Romans perfected it, this way of killing people. Um, it became especially popular in Roman-occupied foreign land, like Israel would have been in Jesus' day. In the 4th century, we learn of a general named Varus who killed 2,000 Jews in like one fell swoop. During Jesus' lifetime... Jesus would have known of the 2,000 of his countrymen who were killed at the hands of the Romans on a cross. Maybe relatives of his. He would have been familiar with this. Josephus, a Roman historian, writes, Christ, Jesus, was crucified on the pretext that he instigated rebellion against Rome on par with other zealots and political activists. So you get crucified by challenging Rome because the cross is the symbol of Roman military and political power. If you could, like, make an icon to, you know, you're in the pitch meeting, in the marketing meeting, we're like, how are we going to sell Rome's power? If we had a symbol and we could put it out there, it was the cross. It was the means by which Rome communicated the supremacy of its ideas. That Caesar was, was divine, that they were the sons of God, that peace and prosperity would come at the hands of Rome, through the hands of Rome, that certain groups of people were worthy of crucifixion and some were not. Did you know that they typically would not crucify Roman citizens? It was saved for brigands, foreigners, um, slaves, criminals. And it said, Rome is supreme. Rome is powerful. And if you, you either play by these rules or you pay with your body. So why so much attention on the cross? If that's what the symbol of the cross was in, in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, what has it become now? 
2,000 years later, like you can go to Northwestern Bookstore if it still existed. Does anybody remember those? You could go to Lifeway, LifeGate, Life, whatever the bookstore is, and you could buy yourself a cross. You could put it up in your kitchen. How bizarre is that? You can tattoo it on your body. You can get it as an earring or as a, a piece of jewelry. That these things, uh, like a, a, a death symbol of political power and oppression has become this thing that we, that's ubiquitous. It has no edges. It's not sharp at all. But think about what it meant. Polite Romans in Jesus' day wouldn't talk about crucifixion. They wouldn't talk about the cross because of its atrocity. Its implications were so alarming that the empire that promised peace and justice would bring it about with such violent means. That the empire itself was built on the scaffolding of crosses. And we could easily forget that the cross was a symbol of that 2,000 years later. So, and I think it's important that we don't forget that. And I wonder if there's anything in our history that functioned in the same way. Like, something that would communicate political power and, if, and the supremacy of an idea, and if you didn't agree with it, you would pay with your own body. I won't do an all-play question here. There's a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree by a scholar named James Cone. And it's a really important book. Because in it, Cone argues that the lynching tree for American history provided the same, it, it served the same function that the cross served in ancient Rome. That it communicated the supremacy of an idea and that it privileged certain bodies over other bodies, and if you didn't agree with that, that you would pay with your body. A couple of quotes from Cohn. He writes, Americans, and, and here I want to I open the door or keep open the door for us as American Christians, because I think this is really important. He writes, Americans who want to understand the true meaning of the American experience need to remember lynching. To forget this atrocity leaves us with a fraudulent perspective of this society and the meaning of the Christian gospel for this nation. Amen. Speaking about the ubiquitous nature of the cross, Cohn goes on and says, Unfortunately, during the 2,000 years of Christian history, this symbol of salvation has been detached from any reference to the ongoing suffering or oppression of human beings called the crucified peoples of history. Until we see the cross and the lynching tree together, until we can identify Christ with the re-crucified black body hanging from a lynching tree, there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. Do, you, do we want to be free from that history? Do we want to be free from that part of our story? Do we want to be healed? And I would just implore you, 
I, I, I never want to say should or ought to you while you're in this space because that's often what religion does. But to, to not answer an affirmative to those questions, do we want to be healed collectively from a part of our story that is real and true, if we don't want to be healed from that, then you have to ask the question why. And I would hope that everyone in this room would say absolutely unequivocally yes. Therefore, I agree with Cohn. I think we have to hold these two things together that we can't forget, that we can't conveniently forget that in our story as Americans, as Christians, there was a, a symbol that functioned in the same way that the cross functioned for Rome. That it oppressed politically and, and dominantly certain groups of people. And to not recognize that, to not draw those two things together, to not hold them in the same space is convenient. It, our, our minds want to do it because it relieves some tension for us. But I would argue, I would, I would invite you, discipleship for us in 2023 as Americans, as mostly white folks, must, has to include these things. So, as one of your pastors, I'm going to challenge you this morning, and I may feel a little uncomfortable in here. You may be a little hot. I'm wearing a tie. I'm sweating. But it's for good reason. We've got deodorant and antiperspirant. Put it on, all right? This is, like, this is really important as one of your pastors. And I don't know that I came to this conclusion early enough. And I'm sad that I didn't come to it, it, it long before I did. But Christian discipleship for an American in 2023 must include this journey of what does it mean to inhabit white bodies? And what does it mean to be a person with an ethnic story? And how do I live that into the future based on our past? The word Sankofa, which is a journey many people take, goes back so that we can go forward. The cross and Holy Week is an invitation to this work. Don't be fooled. Hallmark makes bazillions of dollars on this, but this is really, really hard work. And I want to invite you as a congregation into it. And if you're not interested in that, there's a lot of other places you could go that aren't doing this work. And that's part of the problem, in my opinion. So if you're here, welcome. And I hope you stick around, because this is, this is the gospel work. This is, what it, this is what it means to follow a Jesus who, let's move on to the third point, Jesus absorbs the violence in all of these interactions Jesus has along the way. All four of the Gospels have scenes where Jesus is before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate, and sometimes it includes Herod. And in every one of them, Jesus is struck, he's beaten, he's spit on, he's handed a purple robe and mocked. Strike us blind if you have the power to do so. Get yourself down off the tree if you have the power to do so. They're mocking Jesus. Why? Why? The political power and structures are mocking Jesus. Why? Because their power and their structures depend on coercion. It's the currency of the world. Coercion, by definition, is the practice of persuading someone to do something by using force or threat. The political structures and powers of Jesus' day are mocking him because Jesus is impotent according to their rules. He can't do anything because the rules that they play by run on the tracks of coercion. They're motivated by it. The goal is to get someone else to do something you want them to do by power or any means necessary, right? 
Think about the movies that we watch and the books that we read and who the, hero, the heroes are. Often they're backed into a corner until they can't take it anymore. Even Popeye. I can't stand it no more. And how do they respond? They respond in kind. They respond with violence. If violence is done to them, typically, and the more glorious, the better, right? The more like spectacular the violence is, the better. Think Iron Man, Tony Stark, right? How does he respond? With just more guns, more power, according to their rules. Why do the politicians and the military men who represent the politics of Jesus Day mock him? Because Jesus is impotent according to their rules. They move chess pieces around in the world that they live in with power and violence and coercion. And notice in all of the stories, Jesus doesn't play. Notice in our story, he doesn't even answer Pilate. The Greek literally says, you say. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer is, you say. Which could be taken multiple ways, right? Like, what a great answer. You say, or you say that's who I am. He doesn't even play. He doesn't engage. His power, his, because he's convinced, his transformation is complete. He's now embodying the kingdom of God, which plays by a different set of rules. If Jesus has been on the transformational journey, like, he's ready. He's, he's like, locked in, lo nope, that's a bad metaphor. He's, uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's ready to play, you know. He, he's ready to engage. No, that's not it. He's, 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 he's doing what he's called to do. He, his, his transformation is complete because he's convinced in the kingdom of God, which, which operates by different rules. It's not coercion, but rather suasion, which requires vulnerability. It's not motivated by self-preservation, but by, by self-sacrifice. And the goal is is the transformation of a heart. And you can't change someone's heart by force. In every one of these moments, Jesus has a choice. He can engage and play by the rules that have been given to him. When violence is done, you pick, you hold, you're holding a paddle, not a pillow. This is my metaphor. Paddle, paddles are pillows, friends. I thought of this this morning on my way back from Brugger's. Uh, Jesus could just return the volley, Right? Violence for violence. Do you remember Pong? You know the little Atari game? Had the little ball, and you just move the little cursor thing at the bottom, and when it, the ball would hit the Pong, it would just reflect back into the game. And then it would bounce off a wall and bounce off another wall, and it would come back. That's what happens in our world with violence. It's like a giant game of Pong. And everybody's out there just playing by the rules. So we move over this way and, and reflect it that way, and we move this way and reflect it that way. Why? For our own gain, for our own advancement, because that's the rules of the game. But what if we stopped playing? What if we put down our paddles and we picked up pillows? And instead of reflecting violence back into the world, because, friends, this is the key. I'm falling off the stage. This is the key. In order to do this, you have to understand that someone, somewhere, has to absorb the violence. Someone, somewhere, has to take it in, has to absorb it, because that kind of energy doesn't dissipate in our world. It just keeps bouncing around until someone, somewhere, says, I'm not playing. 
And the only way you can make that move, the only way someone can absorb the violence, not because they deserve it, is if they have a deep well of conviction and belief that, in fact, the rules of this game are not the rules of that game. And that game is the game that God created us to live in, which is called peace, shalom, where there's flourishing and wholeness and delight, where there's no one reflecting violence back, but actually it's love and mutual self-giving and sacrifice for one another, and everybody has enough. That's the game that we're supposed to be playing as humans. And the only way somebody undeservedly can absorb the blow that can take the violence and not return it in kind is if they know to the, beyond the shadow of a doubt to the bottoms of their feet from the tops of their head that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means something. That death does not win. It gets a word but not the last word. And so you take it, you absorb it, and you trust that in fact one day this whole thing will be changed and there will be a new game. There will be a new world, a new kingdom, Jesus says. And that's what we see Jesus doing right before Pilate. He doesn't play. So to you, maybe follower of Jesus, maybe skeptic, maybe questioner, maybe wonderer, this morning, I would offer this reading of the passage to you because I think it's legitimate. And in it we see a Jesus who refuses to play by the rules of the game and who absorbs the violence, trusting that in fact, God, in God's infinite love and infinite beauty, will take what is meant for death and what is meant for destruction and actually make beauty out of it. That on the other side of that death, on the other side of that absorption, is actual life, what we were meant for. And Jesus walks that road and invites you to walk that road as well. It's a wild world out there, and people are as crazy as hell. And there's a lot of violence out there. Enough to go around for everybody. And you can choose to preserve yourself along the way. And it'll cost you. And it'll cost others. It'll cost you your soul. It'll cost you your very essence. Because that's not what you were meant for. And it's foolishness to the world to put down your paddle, to pick up a pillow, and to be the one who absorbs the blow, who doesn't return violence with violence. It's foolishness. But I'm telling you, I think it's the way to life. And so I would invite you to consider it. As you go to your family meetings, as you go to your neighbor or, or your workplaces, and you experience and you encounter people playing Pong, what will you do? The way of Jesus says, we lay down our weapons. What's ironic is that Christianity and colonialism and imperialism somehow got put together. That somehow people got it in their head that this path of Jesus is going to lead to everybody being winners. And on top. And that's just not the gospel. That is not in here. You have to read a different story to get to that end. So if, you're, if you want to lose, 
so that you can win in the, so that we can participate in the kingdom. It's this way. But again, you choose. Every day. Let me offer a word of prayer. God, this morning, as we think about these things that are, geez Louise, um, life and death, in some cases, and as we think about the ways that we've participated in these games, as we think about uh, the rules that we've been given and whether or not we question them or put down our weapons and play a different song. Uh, I pray for my friends in this room in this moment of silence that you would remind us if anything I've said is true, God, plant it deep in our hearts. And if, if I've said something that isn't, then I pray that we would forget it, that it wouldn't last. So Holy Spirit, do your work. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what the Spirit may be saying or doing this morning. Um, so Mike and the band will lead us in song. There is also Eucharist available to you and for you. So on my right and left, there is uh, red wine and white grape juice. Um, so we'll invite you to come down the side aisles and grab a piece of the bread uh, and dip it in the cup. As you do know that the body of Christ has been broken for you and the blood of Christ has been shed for you. Um, so let's respond together. There was a city full of people singing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were all in on what they thought would be up and to the right. More power. Restored power. And when they found out that the way of Jesus actually was the way of death and loss, of absorbing, of putting down our paddles and absorbing the violence instead of returning it, who was left? So actually, I want to I ask you a question this week. Will you commit to living a life that puts down our paddles and takes up pillows to absorb instead of return and volley back the violence that's in the world? Will you commit to that? Is that what you want your life to be about? Because I'm about to bless you. I'm about to send you back into the world. And I want you to be sure that you know what I'm sending you to and why. And if you're not sure, that's okay. But if today you want to say, yeah, I commit to that, at least for the next six days. And then I'll come back again next week and we'll see how it goes. Do you want to do that? Do you want to be that kind of person, those kinds of people in the world? If you think there's another way, I'm open to hearing it as to how we get to more love and more forgiveness and more justice. But I'm convinced this is the only way. So if you want to commit yourself to that, that I would invite you to hold out your hands. And in that, imagine whatever your paddle looks like, whatever it is you volley violence back with. And as I offer this blessing, just let it go and receive this instead. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, Amen. Grace and peace.
find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.